Blog Talk Radio. There's something outside. What is that? And so I saw The Legend of Boggy Creek, and 
I left the theater and I was kind of in disbelief that the tone of the show was trying to convince the listener or the viewer that these things are out there, these creatures. And I got interested real quick and went to the library and started checking books out. And that's how it all began for me. And uh, shortly thereafter, I started, uh, we shopped at JCPenney. I'm not sure if uh, that store is still around, but I took a JCPenney shoebox and started putting newspaper clippings in that I had collected about Bigfoot. And now at age 55, well, a little bit of a, uh, how can you say it? Uh, what's inheritance? Uh, the Center for Bigfoot Files, which I care for, are the largest physical files in the world. So wow. it went from a any shoebox to the largest physical files in the world. And so the files encompass now the Bay Area group files, which were formerly here in the Bay Area, which are now all in Southern California being cared for by me. So there's more in those files there than you could probably imagine and probably try to wade through in a single lifetime as an individual. Wow. Now, do you have those on display for the public, or is that just something you no, it's, you it's, maintain it's and, and kind of? It's it's in my private residence. Okay. And so people are, you know, if if someone said I, I want to see your files, and it, it would depend who they were, I would say, sure, come on over and let's take a look. Hmm. Wow. And you have a lot of newspaper articles from from way back when all this started, correct? Yeah, as, as far as I know, unless someone would come forward and say that their physical files on newspaper clippings are bigger, the Center for Bigfoot Studies files uh, on newspaper clippings worldwide, I think, are the largest uh, compilation ever. And so you're looking at from California to Tennessee to Florida files that are in chronological order, uh, state by state, and you have physical newspaper articles, a lot of them originals, that were all compiled early on by the late George Haas and the late Warren Thompson. And Thomas Steenberg, on the other end, had the privilege of meeting Warren Thompson back in 1989, and after that as well. And what was the event that, what happened there when you guys met with him? Uh, when, when, I met, when I met Thomas Steenberg, uh, I think we were both in our 20s, and that was in June of 1989 at the general meeting for the International Society of Cryptozoology, which is now defunct, and that was in Pullman, Washington, and that was my first time as well meeting with Dr. Grover Krantz and meeting with John Green as well. It was the first time meeting all of these people. First time I had met John Green, first time I had met Thomas Steenberg, uh, but I had met Bob Titmus who was there. Uh, first time meeting Grover Krantz, Dr. Grover Krantz, and that was at the general meeting. And it focused primarily about Bigfoot. And uh, so that was the meeting in Pullman, Washington, where Washington State University is. 
It was the first wow. uh, general get together and symposium on on Bigfoot held since the one in uh, in the late seventy or seventy eight in Bank uh, and the University of British Columbia, and uh, there were speakers and. Uh, uh, I spoke there. Danielle gave a presentation there, and uh, it was it was great getting together there and and uh, seeing everyone flip out when uh, <laughs> when uh, Bob Timmons got mad at Paul Freeman for something, and you know the usual the circus atmosphere at these things that, that always repeated itself over and over and over again. <laughs> oh Lord. Okay, so that was the first time you guys met. Um, now, I know that you, Daniel, you have gone on investigations and, and investigated reports from coast to coast, um, and also in Russia and Australia. Is that correct? That's correct, and I'll give you a quick crash course. Uh, okay. Nineteen. 19- I bought a Class C motorhome, and because I knew in 1996 I wanted to go from Los Angeles to Atlanta, Georgia, to the 1996 Olympic Games, because I'm a big track and field fan. So I've been to eight Summer Olympic Games, but I drove cross-country with that motorhome, rented the house out, and... During that trip, I went and saw a lot of investigators, and I went and saw a lot of uh, eyewitnesses, primarily in Pennsylvania and in Ohio, and that was in 96. And it brought me face-to-face with people who claimed to have seen these things that we call Bigfoot, and both the investigators and researchers were very impressive and I think it was the first time I had met Don Keating in 1996, Mm -hmm. and he introduced me to quite a few eyewitnesses. And then the the witnesses also in Pennsylvania uh, were quite impressive. And uh, then if you go to 2000, September 2000, I flew to Sydney, Australia. And again, the purpose there was not to go yowie hunting, which is the equivalent of Bigfoot in North America, but again, it was a summer vacation to go see the Summer Olympic Games. By chance, just before I took off, uh, it was reported to me that they got a film of a yowie, a fellow by the name of uh, Stephen Charles Piper. Stephen Piper, I think that was his name had got this video and so I told my colleagues there I said hey when I land before I start going to see all these events at the Olympic Games maybe we can uh, track this guy down and uh, do an on-site interview at the site go to the location and would he be willing and I remember being there with one of the investigators his name escapes me it'll probably come back it wasn't Paul Cropper it was his colleague I just Tony Healy And so, yeah, and I told him, I said, get on the phone and call this guy and let's let's book an appointment with him. And he did. And uh, much to my surprise, he was willing to go out and show us where everything took place. And so I did an on-site interview with him and I did uh, uh, a lot of photos of the area. And I was very convinced about his videotape, about what he shot. And he told me, in no uncertain terms, 
prior to shooting this video of the Yowie that he said, you know, born and raised in Australia, that he said, I thought all the Yowie stuff was complete BS. And then he saw one and he videotaped it and uh, that changed his whole ideas about what's out in the, in the bush in Australia. And so wow. I, I, I was very impressed, but my colleagues were not to this day. I think they still think that that strip of video is fraudulent. I don't think that, but everyone is entitled to their viewpoint. But I also interviewed other people who had sightings uh, while I was in Australia. And again, I was very convinced and Paul Cropper and myself over pizza uh, one day told me about a lady, I think her name was Katrina Manis, who had a sighting up in the northern part of Australia. And I said, oh, Paul, this is an excellent report because he was showing me the details of the report. And I said, what would it take to, to phone this lady and chat with her? And so I think he got on his mobile phone because I think he works for a telephone company or something like that. So he was able to go from Sydney all the way to the northern part of the country. And we were able to talk with her. And I was asking her questions about what had transpired with the sighting. And again, I was very, very impressed. And it's just like uh, the footprints that were left behind are really strange. And it's just like, I'm not sure whether we were dealing with a Yowie or a subspecies of it or something else or a complete fraud. I don't know. But I was very impressed with her. And I think she had told me that she had made a trip to the States, United States, and went to a zoo and was looking at a gorilla and kind of trying to get a a feel for what she saw compared to a gorilla. And just that alone, I'm saying, well, if this woman is just completely fraudulent, I don't think she would add that detail to it. Mm -hmm. And uh, was very impressed. So that's Australia. And so let's go to Russia. So I've been to Russia three times, twice to Moscow, once to St. Petersburg. And so I visited with uh, Igor Bortstaff and Dmitry Bayanov primarily, two of the key investigators that investigated the Patterson-Gimlin film, to kind of go over stuff with them. And while I was there, as much as I wanted to hear from eyewitnesses in Russia, I was not able to do that. And it just time just got away from us and uh, ended up being mostly a tourist. But again, I was... I was impressed with uh, Igor Bortstev's investigation of Zana and the offspring of Zana, Quit, I think is the name, and he mm-hmm. had the skull in his office. And, uh, you know, I'm not uh, a doctor. I don't look at cadavers for a living. So he showed me the skull, and, you know, to me it looked like a, a regular skull of a person, maybe a little bit larger. But when you compare that skull to a skull of a normal person, there's quite a bit of difference. And those images are floating around on the Internet, and you can see for yourself. And so I'm, I'm very open to that idea that Zana may have been one of those relic hominoids or something like that. But again, not everyone agrees on that, too. And uh, Dr. Brian Sykes had done some studies and indicated that maybe it was 
just a, a normal South African uh, species of person, but I think board staff doesn't necessarily agree with that idea. So I'm, I, I would say the case for Zona has got to be still open. So that's hmm. my investigation on a, on a global scale. And, of course, Thomas could vouch for me. I've been to B.C. I've only been to British Columbia in Canada. That's the only province I've seen. And investigated and researched and spoke with witnesses there. And two of them that come to mind that I think are very interesting that both Thomas, actually Thomas did the investigation or, or the researcher was introduced. One of the guys' name was Vero Fani, I think. And so he came to a picnic table. He introduced himself to Thomas because he saw on his vehicle Sasquatch research and a phone number. And he just happened to come into the uh, the campsite there and started talking to Thomas and uh, to tell us what had transpired with him. And so Thomas did uh, a taped interview, and I'm heard on the taped interview. And so I was able to ask him questions as well. And he sounded, he sounded, let's just put it this way, he sounded pretty good. And he was telling me that what he saw, I think he had multiple encounters on one incident that the subject was digging into uh, a plant called, I think, devil's cactus or something like that, which is not something that an ordinary person would do without getting cut up pretty badly. And so that point of the observation was, I think, very impressive. So that's just one incident, and I think that happened around Harrison Hot Spring, which is the lower part of B.C. The other one was, I think, May of 1997, and at that time, they were Stephen Harvey was having the Sasquatch, Sasquatch Symposium, and I was the moderator of the event. And so a guy walked in by the name of Mike McDonald, a bear hunter, who claimed that a week before the symposium started, he had seen an advertisement in the newspaper, and he said, you know, I just had a sighting, and I had the scope on my rifle on the subject. And uh, so Thomas was able to get with that person, and I think Thomas and the late Barbara Lawson had went to the site first, and then I think I followed up later. But I, I did go with Tom Steenberg and John Green. I never – I met Mike McDonald, the witness – only briefly for about 15 minutes and I heard part of his story and I said, geez, you know, had I not had an official function at this event to be the moderator, I said, I would have dropped everything and said, let's go right, right now. And so I eventually found myself out, found my way out to where Mike McDonald had his sighting and Thomas did, as far as I know, a taped interview with him. And uh, again, very, very impressive. And so when we got in the field, myself, Tom Steenberg, and John Green looked around, and it's just like, uh, what a tremendous area. What, what a tremendous area. And it's just like, I have zero reason to doubt the witness. And so that's my Canadian investigation. So now I've pretty Okay, much and you said he was a bear hunter. Is that correct? That's correct. That's that's what he's okay. Seen. So he he would be one that would be yes. kind of no nonsense and very detail oriented uh, because when you're out there around bears, you got to be very alert. You have to know all about what's going on in your environment. 
Um, so that I would think that a witness like that, um, you know, would tend to carry a little bit more weight than just somebody well, walk, you know, walking through the woods. Here, here's the point about Michael McDonald that you most people don't realize. It's just like the skeptical point of view and, and part of the magazine, I guess, Skeptical Inquirer, they are of the opinion that oftentimes what witnesses are saying are just bare standing up, et cetera, et cetera. But here's Mike McDonald, an eyewitness, who is a bear hunter and mm-hmm. stated that what he saw through the scope of his rifle where you get a really good view was absolutely not a bear, and what he identified as a Bigfoot or a Sasquatch. So all I can say is that is what the witness was stating. I met him briefly. Thomas spent a little bit of time with him. I guess had some telephone conversations with him, and we were all very impressed. The uh, Mike McDonald was. That's what he was doing in the area of the Anderson River at the time. He was bear hunting. He had his bear tags. And he was glassing on a high point on one bank of the Anderson River, and he saw this air-covered figure down by the shoreline on the opposite bank of the Anderson River. And he, he picked his rifle up and put his crosshairs on it, and while he was looking at it, it stood up. And it's one of the few times that I know of where a witness was able to observe a Sasquatch in such a manner without the animal realizing that it was being watched. And the thing that impressed me most about Mike McDonald is he said when it was eating leaves and it was uh, it was tearing leaves off the branch, and he he described how nervous it seemed all the time, like it was always scanning around, chicken like turning turning its head, its eyes constantly scanning around, like it was very high strung and nervous. And, and uh, Daniel is out there with myself and and John Green and. Uh, uh, a fellow by the name of Gabe Malik came along, too, as I recall. Uh, he and John ended up uh, leaving to go back in the town. But Daniel and I, I had a spare tent, and I believe you and I spent the night out there, Daniel. Yes, and, we did. Uh, uh, we, uh, but unfortunately, we didn't get to see what we were looking for. We didn't encounter one black bear, but that was it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But the Mike McDonald report by itself, even to this day, is very impressive. In my view, other people not may not feel that way, but I'm I'm not sure if other people uh, interviewed the witness or went to the sighting location. We did as best we could, and I look back. I think when I was with Green and Steenberg, that was either '97 or '98, and it's just like there was an opportunity to be with two Canadian investigators, one of them now deceased, and Green being one of the all-time uh, biggest. Sasquatch hunters in the world so it's just like that was a great privilege because there's no one today that can go do that or have that bragging point yeah we were having a little fun with each other there too I remember me and John were trying to hey, let's have a I'm gonna have a little fun with Daniel here because he's from California he probably doesn't know I don't think he fell for it though I, I looked at John winked at him and said John isn't this the area where Big Red is yeah <laughs> And John, John looked at me, I think so. And, Jay, and, of course, Daniel had to ask, who's Big Red? I said, only the meanest grizzly bear this side of the this side of the Rocky Mountains. How many men has he killed, John? And John said, I don't know, 50 at least. <laughs> I don't know if Daniel believed us or not. 
<laughs> I don't think he fell for it, but he he sure he sure caught shouted out when that black bear came around. I would. <laughs> and that's just, hilarious. Just a point on that black bear that Thomas and I saw. I think it was the next day, or it may have been the same day. Yeah. We were walking down uh, a road that was no longer used as a road that was pretty much grown over. And so that black bear went from the right to the left on that small little trail, trail road, and it maybe two, three seconds. And had that been a Bigfoot, Thomas and I would not have got a photo of it because we didn't get a picture of the bear. And it happened that fast. And so oftentimes when people have sightings, they're of that quick fleeting duration and there's almost no time for preparation. And so you come back just with an eyewitness testimony without photographic images. And so that's what happened to both Thomas and I on that incident. But we absolutely mm-hmm. did see a bear. But whether you believe us yeah, or not... Yeah, and that's a good point. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, so whether you believe us or not that we saw a bear, I could care less. <laughs> but we did see a bear. Yeah. I did see a big red, though, right? I got, yeah. All I got was a picture of the of black butt disappearing into the bushes. It was it, it took off that fast. Wow. Mm-hmm. So let let me switch gears just a little bit. And um, one of the most fascinating things um, I know for myself is the the whole Patterson Gimlin situation, the film, the the events that led up to it. Um, you know. We're 50-plus years out, and it's still being debated, and it still causes arguments, and it still, you know, raises people's blood pressure when they discuss it. it now, it's still, it's, go ahead. Now, were, did you and Thomas investigate that area together, the, the Buff Creek no. area? No. The only time Thomas and I have been there together was September of 2003, and it was mostly a tourist guiding. It had nothing to do with investigation. But I will say about the PG film or the Patterson-Gimlin film, which is a little over 51 years now, is that to a great many people it still resonates. And part of the reason why you have to think about it in – Number one, you have two eyewitnesses to the event. Number two, they're not just eyewitnesses. They came back with photographic proof. Uh, Rather than just a photograph, they got a series, they got a film, 954 frames approximately. Number three, they saw footprints. Not only did they take movie pictures of the footprints, but they cast the prints. Number four is that when they left the area, two other parties came one of them being Lyle Laverty, who took photographs of the tracks in the ground, and the second being uh, the late Bob Titmus, who made more than 10 consecutive castings of the prints. Uh, and Nine days later. Point, the, the, the final point about that is that the, the location was known and the people who took the images, Roger Patterson, uh, was known, unlike today where you have YouTube postings of videos that you don't know mm-hmm. where they're shot at, you have no information of who the eyewitness was or who the person who shot the video. And so back then in 67, 
everything was known and everything was known relatively immediately. So there was no, there was no hiding of anything. It was all out in the open. And in fact, Roger tried to get a tracking dog down there, but with no success. And uh, so he was trying to do everything he could to get to the bottom of everything real quick, but everything didn't go his way. But that's why that case, the Patterson-Gimlin incident, is so big and is the biggest and best case ever because it's so well documented and there's so much evidence behind it. And it's just like, so it's a case by itself. And so that's why people continue to talk about it. And so I'll tell you right off the gate, it's just like, I have no question that what you see in that movie film is what we popularly call Bigfoot or Sasquatch. That's one of them right there. And more than likely a female of the species. The, it always gets, it. what I always tell people, and I think I had an argument or actually a semi-argument with an individual just recently in Laos Camp, which is near Bluff Creek, and that's kind of where people camp out to go visit the film site. But I told that person, I won't mention his name, I'm saying, well, the, 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 the thing about the film is that no one can duplicate it. And so that's what makes it real. And then his comeback, well, that's just a wizard, I think a wizard, wizardry of words. And I said, no, that is really just a very, very basic question, almost like asking why is the grass green on the lawn? It gets back to a very, very basic thing. So people see that movie film and they said, oh, that's just a man in a costume. Why waste your time? Okay. Well, if you take that position, it's either one or the other. It's either a Bigfoot or a man in a costume. So if it is a man in a costume, why can't anyone after 51 years duplicate it? No one Mm -hmm. has even come close. So therefore, Mm -hmm. you have to go to the idea that what you're looking at is a biological uh, species that is different than man that everyone has been talking about in folklore and legend, what we call Bigfoot. Even the Nazis. And and I know that back in 67, the quote-unquote costumes that were available um, certainly were not as form-fitting as what is shown in that, that film. Um, it, it has, you can see muscle flexing. And the, the thing that always got me was if, if they were going to fake it, why include the breasts on the creature? Because that's a whole other step of, you know, fakery that you have to, to do and get it right. So, you know, that that's why I kind of lean towards it. it could very well be this creature. Forget, forget about the breast for a moment. Just whether it's a male or a female is, is who cares. The thing is, what you see in the film, if it is a man in a costume, if people take that position, then you should be able to duplicate it. No one has. So right there is, is the stopping point for the argument. And the, this idea that people said, well, it's Bob Hieronymus from Yakima who's in the costume, 
and Philip, the late Philip Morris from North Carolina or wherever he was from, mm-hmm. was the guy who provided the costume. It just filled with lies and stuff, everything. And so you take Philip Morris for a moment, and it's just like, and these people who are keyboard warriors on the internet, they don't even know what they're talking about. So number one, Philip Morris says in Greg Long's book that was published, I think, in 2004, he goes, uh, Philip Morris says, yeah, I said to my wife one day uh, when they showed the film on TV just like a week or a week after that, uh, hey, that's that costume I sold that guy, Roger Patterson. Well, number one, that's a lie because the film wasn't even shown a week after Mm. on television. So he's just making things up that you can check on. And I may I may also point out that Philip Morris was never associated with the PG film until the Greg Long book came out. He never came out in any of the decades before that saying, I stole Patterson the suit, as far as I know. But the most interesting thing to me was NASA Geographic actually used Bob Hieronymus, and they asked Philip Morris to make another suit, and they would dress Hieronymus up in it, and they would film him recreating what they so-called did in 67, and they did, and even NASA Geographic thought, this looks ridiculous. I mean, you did a better job in 67 based on nothing <laughs> than you're doing now based on your so-called own suit. So, <laughs> Yeah, yeah that, there is that, too. That so-called film recreation by National Geographic was so pathetic, so bad, that I don't even think it made its way to television and no, they didn't even use it. They didn't even use it. They thought it was that bad. Yeah, yeah. What, yeah they didn't even use it. On, if you go on YouTube, there's there might be a 20-second clip of it, and I think what someone did was paste together several images to give you the the visualization of something walking. And so there again, uh, National Geographic, who's got some resources behind them, uh, tried to duplicate it, and they fell flat on their butt. So that should tell you something, or it should tell anyone with a reasonable disposition about evidence about which way the case leans. Mm-hmm. Of course, in, in in the world of the skeptic, you're going to get. A, I could dress my grandmother up on a pair of coveralls and some hair and get her to walk in front of the camera, and the skeptic say, "Oh, say, there you go. That's just as good. <laughs> that proves it. It was a man." <laughs> always comes down to the same nonsense over and over again. See, the most of the thing in the skeptic world is not so much the image on the film that they argue about, it's the all unimportant circumstances surrounding the film that they try to make an issue of. Why has Roger Patterson got five o'clock shadow in, in his face when he didn't have it there? Why is there a white stain on his jeans and there wasn't one before? You know, why is his pocket and his coat done up here and not done up there? You know, just absolute Jeez. ridiculous Nonsense, and, and but you know, that's what keeps it going. Yeah, true that. Oh. <clears throat> now, so anyway, we we yeah, were go ahead, Daniel. We were there just recently in October, and so I was invited by Kip Morrill, and I told him, depending on my work situation, it would depend whether I could go up or not. So I was able to break away for a week in October, and we had absolutely gorgeous weather so it made everything we wanted to do up there feasible and so we went up and we made a recreation film using Kip Morrill 
as the film subject. He's six feet two inches tall. And so we used him as our patty, and we took my Kodak K100 camera, which is the same that Roger Patterson used at the time, and we equipped it with both a 25-millimeter lens and a 15-millimeter lens, and we did multiple takes to see, to try to get some sort of comparison. And just me being the bystander, because I was not doing the filming, I was just doing the watching it was just an incredible, interesting experience watching a man trying to recreate what happened in 67. And I think you had to have been there to, to, to grab that appreciation of watching Kip Morrill walk away and envisioning that that could have been Patty and you kind of get a feel for it. The only bad thing 51 years later is that area, that sandbar, has uh, in it now a great many more trees that were not there at the time of the filming. And the other thing, too, is that in 67, you see in the original movie quite a few stumps. Uh, Surprisingly, those stumps and a lot of the trees in the background are still there. The big tree is still there. All the stumps are still there. There's a tree there that is called the ladder tree because it has a bunch of spikes sticking out, branches, dead branches, so they call it the ladder tree. It's still there. There is a log. There's a stump that the investigators have called smiley stump, and the reason because it looks like it has a smiley face on the front of it, which it does in a way. But So that's directly in line with a tree in the background and where Pat, where the subject in the movie was in approximately frame 352. And so that's your sight line, if you will. So if you were to try to line things up, this is how things line up in roughly in that frame. And so we pulled back to where the camera was and I was able to get a photo of Robert Leiterman, another investigator was pointing out that here's a branch in the extreme foreground off a dead tree that you could see in the original movie, and it's still there 51 51 years later, covered with green moss. And so I was able to crouch behind Robert Leiterman and get that shot. And it's just so wonderful to understand firsthand that a lot of the filming artifacts that were there in 67 are still there today. And unless you actually go there, it's hard to appreciate that. And in fact, I've had discussions on the Bigfoot forums where people said like, how can those stumps still be there? And it's just like, I don't know. I'm not a tree expert. All I'm telling you is they're still there. So, yeah. So that's, that's part of the beauty of being an investigator and a research and, the joy of finding things out by doing your own investigation. Right. Well, how did that film turn out? I mean, in comparison to the subject in the Patterson-Gimlin film. That that film belonged to Rowdy Kelly, and he is still in the process of getting it developed. So it was actually filmed. It was actually 16-millimeter Kodachrome film. And okay. he says there's a place there in the United States that still processes Kodak Chrome film. Wow. So we're oh I'm wow, still wait, I'm still waiting for it to be developed so we can take a look at. It. 
That was my That's biggest amazing. worry right there. Because uh, my understanding was Kodak closed its last Kodachrome 2 uh, lab in Rochester about eight years ago. So <laughs> I was trying, well, where the heck is he going to get this developed? <laughs> That that was my understanding too, but he yeah. he told me that he knows a place where they still process uh, movie film, and I said that's wonderful. I didn't even question. I yeah. said throw the film in and let's do the filming. So we did. Good. That's Matter of fact, amazing. And now the results are they going to? Are you guys going to make that public? Oh, I'm sure it's going to be on uh, the Bluff Creek Project website, mm-hmm. awesome. which I guess. Stephen Struford, the proprietor of the Bigfoot Books in Willow Creek, is uh, will probably put it on his website or his blog mm-hmm. site. And so, you know, when you gather this data, it's of no value if it's not shared. And if it's shared with your yeah. serious-minded colleagues, they could look at things and assess for themselves. But mm-hmm. when it comes mm-hmm. to the skeptics, mm-hmm. and when it comes to the skeptics and doubters. They're not the least bit interested in going on a fact-finding mission to go to the film site and to find out anything for themselves, because largely they've made up their minds that the film is fake. So why bother? So, but that's their prerogative. Right. I have. I, I would rather go there and say, like, look what we found out firsthand. Not just by reading in a book or reading on the internet, but mm-hmm. actually spending time, money Being there being there and doing some real homework and so that's what we did. And so that's amazing. I, I'm very curious to see how the height comparison um the ratio in that turns out because <clears throat> if it shows that the subject was quite a bit taller than that then then that's going to be uh hmm I mean how do you wrap your mind around that. Let's say they come back and they say, well, it was about seven feet tall. That's going to uh, open up a whole can of worms right there. Well, you know, most people who know about the film, that's just it. They know about the film, but they know very little about all this research that has been done since day one to the present time. And so in 71, I think in August of 71 or August of 72, when Rene DeHinden was still alive and doing his research, he took a copy of the movie film with him. And he, I guess his, one of his son or both of his sons were along with him, but he saw on the film site floor that there was a piece of wood. And he, he corrects me because I always said a branch. And he says, no, it was a piece of wood. And uh, it was a piece of wood. And so he collected it as a souvenir. But as the subject walks in the movie film, it's very clear that the subject is either stepping on that piece of wood or stepping right next to it because you can see in the movie film that that piece of wood moves. And you can see that uh, on YouTube with what I think they call a GIF where you could see the frames move slowly and you see the piece of wood move. So that establishes that the piece of wood in relation to the subject in the movie is in the same film plane. So therefore, it can be used as a measuring device for the subject Mm. seen in the film, regardless of the lens that's on the camera, because it takes away the lens. It takes away away all the math. It it only requires you to understand a one-to-one ratio. 
Because if someone were to throw at my feet a Marlboro book of cigarettes and take a picture of me, then that establish and they could use that cigarette box as a gauge to measure me because mm-hmm. they would know how big that is. But Renee right. look, took that piece of wood back with him and later showed it to investigator Chris Murphy. And Chris Murphy was able to determine that by using that piece of wood as a scale, because it's a one-to-one ratio, because it's in the same film plane as the subject, that the subject was roughly seven foot three inches tall. And when wow. you say seven foot inches tall, that's the walking height of the subject. And because when you look at the subject for the, in the majority of the movie film, it looks like the subject is a little bit crouched over. So they mm-hmm. call that the walking height. So if the thing were to be stood up directly next to a brick wall, it probably would be even a little bit taller. So in my mind, use what Renee did on that expedition, on that research fact-finding trip was just unbelievable. And his, his oldest son, uh, Eric Hinden, has that piece of wood in his possession. And oh, he still has it. Yes, it's still in existence. And in 1990, let me think, 2005, May, June 2005, there was a conference in Bellingham, Washington, and Thomas Steinberg and Chris Murphy came down. And unbeknownst to me, they had that piece of wood with them. And they took a photo of that piece of wood with me holding it, and it later appeared in a book, uh, one of Chris Murphy's books. And so there it is. That is the piece of wood. And I think later on, uh, Dr. Meldrum, back in the early days of the Internet, and this was probably the late 90s, and I still have those hard copies. I don't know what it was between those two, but he was under the impression or had the idea, how can a piece of wood last from 67 to 72? And that's like saying, well, how can all the other stuff last this long after 51 years that I just spoke about? (laughs) No one is going to come by and say like, oh, that piece of wood is valuable. That piece of wood was in the film. I'm going to take it. I mean, it's just a film site that nobody even knew about in 71 and 72. No one even cared about. And so that's where that piece of wood comes by. The wood's not going to just stand up and walk away by itself. Right. And so that's I amazing. That and in terms of getting uh, a feel for how tall the subject is, it's just like that was the late Rene de Hinden's piece of work that is his one of his major claims to fame for all wow. of his work that he did on the film site. And and he told me uh, once at the Vancouver Gun Club where I used to live, he goes as he was smoking his pipe, and it was probably later in the evening, he goes, you know why I did all this damn work on the film site? And then he pauses, and then he takes two fingers, and he points to himself, and he goes, because I wanted to know. And he was very often used words that were profanity-laced, but he goes, after that, he kind of probably said something, I don't give an ass what other people think. He says, I wanted to know. Wow. And so 
here was a guy that could care less what the world thought about his investigation and research in Bigfoot. It was what he wanted to do. And so I thought, you know, it's just like Thomas and I have the greatest respect for Rene Dehindu. He was he was mm-hmm. a world class Bigfoot investigator, without a doubt. Yes, and I think Thomas does the best impersonation of uh, Rennie that I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah. but let's, let's move on if you have further questions. I mean, I'm sure you do. So and let you, me ask you, you guys this. When you guys went to, you, you guys were together at the film side, is that correct? Yes. Near in 2003, yeah. In 2003. And what was it that you were doing at the film site together on, on that day? Mostly just showing the other people around. Okay. As a matter of fact, uh, when Daniel and I went down there, um, they were they were complete. There was this group that was down there to see the film site, and the guides, who, the people who drove the Jeeps and drove them down there, were pointing at a completely different place. and. <laughs> I remember Daniel and I, we looked at each other, and I, I guess we were kind of thinking the same thing. We said, hey, hey guys, uh, you're at the wrong spot. Uh, it's this way. And uh, we started walking off the other way towards the bowling alley, and we kind of knew that, you know, as soon as you get to that area along the creek bed known as the bowling alley, and you look straight north, that's the film site. And the film site's filled now with uh, 25, 30-foot new growth forest. Only one little piece at the very far left end is still remotely a clearing. But these guys, they they, they were in a completely different area on the creek. They had no idea where it was. Uh, Daniel and I knew where it was, or at least we thought we did, and uh, we, we took them to where, 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 where it should have been. And um, yeah. I think we were right. They were pretty damn close, and, uh, uh, but they were looking at a completely wrong place. I mean, they went the wrong way. They went. They went right down to the creek, but they turned left when they should have turned right. And they were they were looking at some log-strewn area that was one on the wrong side of the creek and was in the completely wrong direction. So we kind of, uh, I don't think we ever got credit for it, but we kind of uh, showed them where it really was. So a point of clarification to what Thomas has just said. So when they speak of the bowling alley area, that's Bluff Creek itself. That's where the creek turns. And it, there's an area, a section where it has this bowling alley, alley, bowling alley straight to it. it. It straightens out real straight. Once you find that area, and then you drop back to where you're going to start bowling, the creek makes a right-hand turn, or turns to the east. Excuse me, turns to the west very sharply. And it's in that corner that where the film site is. So in September of 2003, when a great many of us were there, including Matt Moneymaker, Dr. Jeff Meldrum, Dr. Jeff John Bindernagel, John Green, myself, Thomas Steenberg, uh, Al, uh, excuse me, uh, Bob Gimlin, and Al Hodgson, and Autumn Williams, and Jeff, uh, Doug Hycheck, we were literally on the film site. We came up from the backside. Uh, unbeknownst to us and we were standing there and looking back I'm saying yeah that's the film site and it's just like it's just too damn overgrown at the time and it wasn't later when a group of people headed by 
Steven Struford, uh, Robert Leiterman, and Rowdy Kelly really made a, an all-out effort to really find the film site in the sense that where they have known landmarks such as trees to say like, okay, this is the place. And so they, they nailed it and they get credit for that. And so as a result, two of them, Leiterman and Struford became the big footer of the years, I think in 2011 or 2012. So it was a really okay. great, piece, great piece of work that they did. But prior to that, uh, so anyway, facts are facts whether you sugarcoat them or not. I mean, there's only, right. there's, there can, there's no alternative facts. And so prior to that, the film site got lost. And it was during that time headed by MK Davis that he had found his own film site. And he said, this is the place. And then there was also, I guess the Barackman site and some other sites. And it's just like, it was all just nonsense. There's only one film site, and it's just like mm-hmm. those people get credit for rediscovering the yeah. film site because the area is, is, has grown up so much that it's kind of disguised itself. And so they were able to rediscover the film site, and to that we give them great credit. And like I said, yeah. in my newsletter, the Bigfoot Times, they were named the Bigfooters of the Year. It's the only time that we've named two people at one time. Well, you know, speaking of your newsletter, I, I definitely wanted to touch on that. Um, and some people may not even be aware of it, but you you have a newsletter called Bigfoot Times. And how in many January, years have you been publishing that? In, in January, we're going to celebrate 21 years. 21, 21 years. years. In January of 1998, and the motivation for me starting to publish that newsletter, because at the time, at the dawn of the Internet, there was still quite of, a lot of paper publications that were mailed out to subscribers or members, including Ray Crow's Western Bigfoot Society newsletter and several other Don Keating and people in between. And I didn't think that these people were putting enough time and effort and quality reporting into the newsletter. So I said, you know what? I want to launch my own. And it's just like, like I said, facts are facts and forget about all the hearsay. And so I started that publication and we started out with just a few dozen people. And now we're up to almost 900 members worldwide. And there's only during time, during that time, all those other newsletters folded every last one of them. And today on planet Earth, there's only one Bigfoot newsletter that's mailed out to members on a monthly basis. And I'll be damned, it's called the Bigfoot Times, and I'm the editor and publisher of it. And that's badass right there. I think it is. Am I allowed to say that on air? (laughs) Um, Well, you did, so there you go. (laughs) Well, I did. I'll tell you what, that's just phenomenal and um you like you mentioned you do have the the big footer of the year um that you put in one one particular um do you do that at the end of the year or the beginning of the next year or what and what criteria do you use next okay next month will be our unveiling of the big footer of the year who's done okay we would consider or what i would consider the best work for the year in that calendar year. And so in 67, there was no Bigfoot Times, but obviously 
event, the title would have gone to Roger Patterson, of course. Right. In 68, it obviously would have gone to John Green for the publication of On the Track of the Sasquatch. Yeah. So, in 2005, uh, an unknown to me, the first and only time I only met the fellow was Matt Crowley, who presented at the Bellingham Conference. It took me all of 20 minutes to hear this guy's presentation to say, like, I didn't tell anyone. I said, I just walked away and I said, that's him. That's the guy. That's the big footer of the year. There's no doubt about it because at the time, people were talking about dermal ridges that were seen on plaster of Paris castings that represent absolute proof that this is Bigfoot. Sweat pores, etc. And Glover Krantz and other people were big on this. And here was a guy, Matt Crowley, who gave this presentation and showed that, demonstrated that stalled wave fronts on the formation of plaster can cause these so-called dermal ridges, stalled wave fronts as the plaster is setting, and also the pores, because those are the air pockets that come out of these so-called dermal ridges. And so it was an alternative explanation for the dermal ridges. And I thought that singular piece of work was just brilliant. And I said, yeah. there is nobody that is going to beat this guy this year. And so <laughs> it was the I originality agree. of the work, the originality of the work that got him that title. 2006 comes Jeff Meldrum, publication of his book, which was just brilliant. I can't think of the title right now, but because of that uh, excellence in his book, he was our big fan wow. of the year. 2009 rolls around a guy by the name of Bill Munns from Southern California who starts working mm-hmm. on Patterson's film and starts posting on Bill's website and starts doing some really uh, original work on the film. And so needless to say, I went up to visit him or saw what he was doing. And needless to say, 2009, Bill Munns was our big footer of the year. And so you asked, what are the credentials, what is the criteria, and it's just like, I don't care whether it's a man or a woman or whoever it is, it's the originality of the work for that singular year. In 2000, mm-hmm. I forget the date, but Brian Sykes nailed it because what he did in his book, and it was the publication of his books, Brian Sykes is the, a geneticist from Oxford University from England who asked for a bunch of North American samples of hair samples so he could test them. And he found that everything that he got, I guess, with one of them being questionable, uh, all of those hair samples had normal explanations from sheep to cows to bears to horses or whatever. And because he had the courage to do this work and to say, like, Mm -hmm. we haven't we haven't found Bigfoot yet, but everything that everyone submitted is not what we think it is. And so there again, there was the courage to stand up to the crowd, and so that's what right. made him the Bigfoot of the year. And so that's that really is how we go about doing things. And it's just like, so this year we've already, it's already occurred to me who that person will is. And I'm not going to say whether it's female or male, whether they live in Texas or Florida or Canada. It's just like in in December in the newsletter, we will all find out who that person is. 
Wow. Now, have you ever had any women Bigfooters of the year? Uh, surprisingly, that has not happened yet, but I guarantee you that had the Bigfoot Times been going in 1979, the publication of the self-published book Sasquatch Apparitions by the late Barbara Wasson, she would have nailed it without yes. a doubt. And I, so, I have a particular um, a friend of mine who happens to be female who I think, uh, yeah, now, I'm just going to leave let, it at that. Let, let, <laughs> let me just go. Let me just go back to last century. The reason I bring up Barbara Wasson, because at the time in Bigfooting in 1979, uh, Bigfooting was a male-dominated sport. Yes. There were few and far between uh, women in the field. Barbara Wasson was just happened to be one of them. In her book, she took on all the major Bigfoot investigators and critiqued them. And I think part wow. of the title of her book, called a critique of the Pacific Northwest hominoid or whatever. But so she had the courage to do that as a single woman. And like I said, had the Bigfoot Times been in publication in 1979, she would have our Bigfooter of the Year for that book. Because, again, you know, that's truly exciting. She may be gone, but her book will live forever in the Bigfoot community. I've titled the book as Sasquatch Apparitions. Okay. Yes. And you can still purchase that, is that correct? It's hard to get a hold of, but I'm sure you can get an expensive copy on eBay now because it was a self-published uh, book. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'll have to look into that. Um, so you, December's issue is going to announce the winner. Now, how do people sign up for the newsletter Daniel, you you could simply go to the website www.bigfoottimes.net and you could if you've got PayPal you could go through there or my email all my contact information is there including the email and the phone number and someone could say like hey I want to send you a check or a money order or cash and they could do it that way. Okay. So and what is the cost for that? For the American subscribers, it's uh, $17.50 per year, and so it's mailed out every month. And for the rest of the world, people in Canada, Australia, England, or wherever the case may be, uh, it's $21. Wow. That's unreal. That's Like I said, the only thing I can say about the Bigfoot Times, I'm saying, well, all the rest of the newsletters folded, but the Bigfoot Times is still going strong, so that must say something. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, and I'll tell you what, um, you know, like I said at the beginning of this show, I just completely stoked that you even came on to the show with us because I know you do not do podcasts very often at all. Um, Now, we are getting close to the end of the show here. Um, Daniel, let me ask you a question, and I want you sure. to think about this. Who is your favorite all-time Bigfoot investigator? Probably Green and the Hinden. Uh-huh. Because and 
they were a study in contrast. One of them was highly schooled, wrote several books, and the other was didn't have much schooling, but a hell of an investigator. And when I started writing letters to them early on when I was in my teens, they were kind enough to reply. And then not only did we write letters, but we exchanged phone calls too. So they were a tremendous influence to me. So that that's almost like as I was going up the ranks in Bigfooting, that's almost like being uh, having a internship with, uh, say, like Kobe Bryant and Wilt Chamberlain yeah. all at the same time. Absolutely. And so that was a rare privilege because I, Thomas and I knew these people personally, and uh, a lot of people don't even know who these people are. In fact, no, and, and that's one reason why I wanted to do this show um, and try to get as, as many of you, the, I call it the Squatch Fathers, onto the show to discuss this because it's, you know, people are passing away. Um, history's fading, but we need to keep this in the forefront because I think that with a lot of the investigators that are coming in, in recently, I think it would be very beneficial for them to learn who these people are that we are discussing because they brought so much to the table and, and just countless hours of time and energy and resources you know, for this enigma that we just cannot, you know, wrap our hands around yet, and it, it drives me mad. I I really wish that we could, um, once and for all, prove these things to exist. That's well, I think I think that might happen. It's just it's just a matter of time, and uh, you know. But like I was saying before, you spoke there is that. Cliff Barackman from Finding Bigfoot was at a meeting, a Bigfoot meeting, and he told me that someone asked, uh, who is John Green? And I told him, I said, you're kidding me. I, I said, that's like following baseball and asking, who is Babe Ruth? Mm. Right, right. And, I mean, there's tons of books out there um, available to read their work. You know, John Green has books. Thomas has books. Daniel, you have a couple of books that you've authored also, don't you? Well, in 1988, I published a bibliography called Bigfoot Notes. And that really isn't a book to read. That's really a reference book. And now that eBay's in existence, a lot of people can have that book or buy that book and use it to get old magazine articles or magazines themselves by just looking at the magazine section of the Bigfoot Notes to say, like, oh, here's something from McLean's Magazine, 1934. And it's just like, now I know where to go. And so it's all there. But later on, in on the 25th anniversary of the PG film, uh, in 1990. In the mid-1990s, 1994 or 1995, I released uh, Bigfoot at Bluff Creek, which is a booklet, a black booklet. And then in September of 2003, I re-released that booklet, Bigfoot at Bluff Creek. And that, it's not a book, it's a booklet. And that is one of the most, uh, how can I say it, uh, useful resources on the Patterson-Gimlin mm-hmm. film. And if you look at the, a lot of the, the back matter, the bibliography of a uh, great many books on the subject, it's referenced. 
I mean, you see it there referenced in Jeff Melbourne's book, uh, Bigfoot at Bluff Creek. And so, yeah. Yeah, and it's so considered that, the, the go-to Bible, if you will, on Bluff Creek. To this day, it is still considered that. I will throw that in there. Yeah, and it's 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 a hot piece of property. And uh, so what <laughs> I've made is, well, let me, let me just tell you what's happening now is that next year I hope to publish – a self-published book, maybe about a thousand in print to make it purposely scarce uh, because I only want people who really want to have them to have them rather than sell them to anyone who wants one. Uh, When George Haas was living, who was the co-founder of the Bay Area group with Archie Buckley, is in June of 68, he went up to the Patterson-Gimlin film site and he took with him his camera, 35-millimeter camera, and he shot up the film site with color slides. Those slides have never seen daylight. So all of those slides, when he passed on, were inherited by Warren Thompson. When Warren Thompson passed on, all of those slides were inherited by me. So I have all was in my possession and it shows the film site like you've never seen before and I plan on publishing those in a book because people want to see the film site like they've never seen images of the film site that they've never seen before and that's part of what I want to do soon I'm working on it's just a matter of finding the time to do it Right, and I'll tell you what, you can put my name down as one of those persons of interest that would really like to have one of his books. Keep that in mind. Well, I can tell the the listeners right now, they're not going to be cheap because they're going to be printed here in the United States, not Japan or China, and they're going to be full color, and I'm going to be the the editor and publisher of the book so I could have total quality control over everything. Because oftentimes what people, when they publish books, they're just the author or whatever, and the printer takes care of the rest. And people don't know anything about printing, but there's registration on images. And oftentimes if you don't get the registration on the images correct, you get a fuzzy image. And so I want to make sure that all the images that are printed or needle sharp. So this way that you have a book where you can really look and study the pictures and say like, oh, wow, those those are really, really impressive. Well, that sounds awesome. I'm telling you, um, you, you definitely have to keep me posted on that. And, and I'd like to have a signed copy too. You think that'll be possible? Well, it probably will be. You rock. I'll tell you what, let me, let me uh, ask Thomas. Thomas, if you, what do you think about today's show? What, what stuck out to you about tonight's show that people should take with them after, you know, taking the time to listen to the show? And we really appreciate everyone who, who does take the time to listen. You know, we, we just appreciate you so much. What do you think people should take away from this tonight? I think people should take away from this as they do when they listen to all your shows. The best way to go about investigating 
This ongoing mystery is adopt a philosophy is stick to the facts and never deviate from the facts. And stay away from wild speculation. Because I feel so sorry for people who are coming into this research today. They're just bombarded with so much of what I've always referred to as inmates running the asylum. It's hard to know what's real and what's not anymore. And uh, uh, it's 98% of it, of what you see on YouTube and the Internet and everything else, is absolute nonsense. So that's why your show here, Julie does such a great job because we get people like Daniel on who have been in this from the beginning and you get the respect of what really happened rather than what people say happened years later who don't know the facts. You know what? You're right, Thomas, the facts. Um, and I I am just honored that you guys, you know, took the time to do this show and Thomas you know, every week he's on here with, or every month he's on here with me doing a monthly show, and you know, I just, I just can't stress enough that people need to learn the history of this and and understand, you know, the people sacrifice their lives. Some people sacrifice their lives to try to figure out this enigma, and um, I don't think it's to be taken lightly. I, you know. I just don't. So, but I'll tell you what, Daniel, it was such a pleasure having you on, and um, I hope you would consider coming back again sometime for another show. Sure. As like I said, as long as you've got questions advanced that I could think about, I would have no trouble uh, being on as a guest again. Awesome. Well, we we do have to close. Um, I think I need to start making these a two-hour show. <laughs> uh, there's so much to cover. But, again, thank you both for, for being on the show tonight. Um, thank all our listeners. And we will have another exciting show for you next month. And until we meet again, keep it squatchy.